You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. I've got Ben Folks live and direct from the other side of town. We're both senior writers in MMA for The Athletic. We meet here every single week to chop up all the prominent, newsworthy, and hilarious happenings in the world of mixed martial arts. Ben, how you doing this week? Well, it's Monday, Chad. That kind of just has no meaning for me anymore. No, it really doesn't. The, the days blend together. The weekends are non-existent and meaningless. It's just uh, it's just one day after the next. All it means for me is that the trash gets picked up and uh, I sit down here and talk with you. I mean, at least they're still picking the trash up. Yeah. Am I right? By the way, I listed those things in order of importance, just so you know. All right. Well, you know, I guess I'll, uh, I'll soldier on despite the slap in the face. Jeb, big news right off the bat. How... Excited are you to hear that your beloved Winnipeg Blue Bombers have signed former Montana Grizzlies quarterback Dalton Sneed. Go Blue Bombers, by the way. It's the biggest news of the day, clearly. Everyone's talking about it. Yeah. Earth-shattering news. Is this going to be the thing that finally gets Chad Dundas to sit down and watch some Blue Bombers games, assuming football ever comes back? I mean, for all we know, the Blue Bombers might be our only option when the time comes. Okay. I'm prepared for that that version of reality. I could live in that world. Yeah. The time right now, a timeline where the only football is Canadian football seems okay to me. Seems completely unobjectionable. Just because they're the only ones with the healthcare good enough to pull it off. (laughs) Yeah. Something like that. Uh, Ben, we've got, we've actually got a fair amount of, uh, present day mixed martial arts news to cover this week on the co-main event podcast. Surprisingly enough, despite the fact that nearly the whole sport is shut down, Due to the ongoing coronavirus epidemic, uh, we had planned last week to move ahead with our uh, blast from the past content about UFC 2 this weekend because we discussed UFC 1 on last weekend's co-main event podcast. We might still end up doing that. We're going to have a little bit of an unorthodox format, I think, on today's show. Uh, we're going to talk about the the kind of breaking stuff that's happening in the world of MMA. We've got some listener mail to get through. And uh, we'll see how much time that affords at the end or the second half of the show, perhaps, to talk about UFC 2. Worst comes to worst, uh, maybe we kick UFC 2 down the road a little bit, talk about that next week, uh, because, as you know, UFC 2 is not going anywhere. But uh, it is our intent to get it get to it this week. We'll just have to see how long we end up talking about this other stuff. You ready to jump into this? Yeah, man. I mean, I was looking forward to discussing UFC 2, especially I was looking forward to discussing Maybe my favorite quote to come out of the USC 2 broadcast, which is, we don't know much about Scott Morris because he is a ninja. Just yeah, I think they say that uh, that stands to reason. And then have you noticed, uh, they pretty much say they don't know anything about any of the people in the tournament except for Hoist Gracie. Yeah. Pretty much every yeah. guy who fights, they're like, we don't know that much about him. So just your first Absolutely. clue about what's going on there with UFC 2. I love Jim Brown kind of accidentally throwing shade, also looking into the future of MMA at one point when he sees somebody uh, getting caught in a choke. And he's like, you'd think these guys would learn these chokes. And you're like, yeah, Jim Brown, (laughs) you'd think they would. And eventually they will. See, Jim Brown, forward thinking, 
progressive revolutionary Jim Brown. Yeah. All right, let's talk about this first, Ben. This this is what I woke up to today. Habib Nurmagomedov says he's under lockdown in Russia, and uh, UFC 249 may go on ahead, quote, with or without me. This is uh, according to posts, I believe, on Habib Nurmagomedov's – Oh no! This is an interview he did with RT Sport. Well, and, I think it was I'm, an Instagram. There's an Instagram live video, and RT Sport translated it and stuff for people. Okay, all right. I'm looking at the Simon Head version over there on MMA Junkie, but uh, we've been talking a lot about the UFC's ongoing efforts to try to get UFC 249 to come off as scheduled, at least on the day that it's supposed to go down next month, April the 18th, I believe. And this just puts it even further into the realm of impossibility. I think we should – I'm just going to read these quotes from Habib because this really paints a picture, I think, as to what we're doing and where we are with this event right now. Uh, Here's Habib's quote. We were training at American Kickboxing Academy without any information regarding the fight, where and how it's going to happen. Um, The UFC told us that the fight 100% isn't happening in the States, and they said that 99% that it will happen in the United Arab Emirates in Abu Dhabi. After talking to the UFC, we decided to fly over to the Emirates a month before the fight. I don't remember the exact date. It was March 19th or 20th. I'll have to check. But when we landed in the Emirates, we learned that they are going to close the borders and no one will be able to leave or fly in with the exception of residents. So we had to fly back to Russia. Currently, I'm in Dagestan and I'm training and preparing every day, although I don't know what I'm preparing for because after we came to Russia, we also learned that the borders are going to be locked. Same as in the States, same like in Europe, in the Emirates and everywhere. The whole world is in quarantine right now. Uh, He goes on to say, so now I'm hearing that they are looking to organize it, meaning UFC 249, with or without me. Okay, go ahead. Everyone should follow the laws. I'm not against it. I know that fighters need to feed their families and pay their bills. I know how hard it is for the fighter. Unless they fight, they aren't getting any money. I'm even hearing that they are looking at an opponent for Tony Ferguson because he's in the States and I'm here in Russia, but I am here not of my own free will. The UFC told me that this fight 100% isn't happening in in the USA, and even if it's not happening in the Emirates, it will happen on this side of the Atlantic. We discussed everything with the UFC. By that time, I already spent five weeks of hard training at AKA. Now, I don't really know what's going on. It's really hard to train and cut weight when your whole world is locked down and you don't know what you're preparing for, but it's not the first time that I've faced obstacles in my career. Okay, first of all, I have to say, your boy Habib being kind of shockingly level-headed and reasonable about all this. Like, yeah. not, not to yeah. say that I expected them to just completely fly off the handle or anything, but I could understand somebody being super fucking annoyed, just in general, but also at the UFC specifically. If things really went down the way he de- describes, where the UFC tells you, hey, we are definitely not doing this in the United States. It's almost certainly going to be this place. You try to go to that place. You end up just getting stuck back in your your home country. The borders are locked down. You can't leave. And basically through what sounds like poor communication on the UFC's part, you get frozen out of this huge title fight. And they're going to go ahead without you. And you're just kind of screwed all this time and back and forth and everything that you've put in. Uh, sorry, you, you don't get anything for it. I, I could understand being pissed off about that. And he seems like he is taking it you know, pretty well, all things considered. Yeah, and like to Habib Nurmagomedov's credit, it seems like he is trying to handle this entire situation in the way that will work out best for himself and best for the event and best for the UFC. Like they tell him it's probably going to be in Abu Dhabi, and obviously that's a place 
that Habib knows pretty well, a place that he spends a lot of time. So he decides to get out there. It seems like he's he's not only trying to do everything right, like he's trying to uh, he's trying to do uh, the best that he can. He's like trying to do an exemplary job here. He flies out to Abu Dhabi early, so uh, assumedly to acclimate maybe to the to the weather, to acclimate to the time change, and get ready for UFC two forty nine. Next thing you know, it seems like uh, he's kind of screwed now because he's essentially locked down back home in Dagestan, and so it it. it it seems like Habib tried to do everything right, at least in his own telling. That's pretty much all we have to go on here. And at the same time, again, where we, we are reminded here, as uh, I think you wrote about on The Athletic a little bit today, Ben, it sounds like most fighters who are currently booked for UFC 249 are proceeding like their their fight is going to happen, but it doesn't sound like they're getting a lot of information from the promoter about what they should do or whether or not they're, they're still on the card or whether or not the card will happen or where it will even be. Yeah. No, everybody I talked to, I asked them all, what have you heard from the UFC? Are they telling you? Cause you would think that if the UFC wants these people to be ready to fight and the UFC is thinking a hundred percent, we're doing this fight one way or another, this event, all this stuff is going to go down as scheduled. You'd think that it would be in your best interest to reach out to these people who are scheduled for this card just to make sure everything's on track and that they're not freaking out and that they are doing okay and that they'll be ready to fight come uh, April 18th. And I asked them, as the UFC told you, hey, don't worry, keep training, everything's going to be fine. And they said, no, we haven't heard anything from the UFC. Uh, one, one of them told me, I get my UFC news by following the UFC on Instagram. And another one said, well, hey, I follow the advertising and they're still advertising the fight like it's going to happen. So I guess that means like that's that's been the closest thing I've gotten to anybody trying to reassure me that this fight is going to go on. And that part kind of surprises me. I mean, I guess it shouldn't because how many stories have we heard over the years about fighters finding out that they're cut or that their fights are canceled or, or what just from like Twitter or following different MMA media reporters on social media somehow, like that's how they get the news. So it's not like the USC has a reputation for being great at communication, but it would seem like if you are trying to hold this event together, that should be something that you're doing is reaching out to those people and making sure that everybody can get their stuff done and, and be ready to go when the time comes. Because in talking to these people about what their reality is like and trying to train for these fights it's really difficult, man. I mean, some people have a better setup than others because like Ben Rothwell, you know, he owns his own gym. Kama uh, Worthy, he owns his own gym. And so it's like they can just close it down and they have a gym where they can go and they can train. And if you know one other sparring partner that's willing to kind of quarantine himself for you, you could stay reasonably safe and still get your training in to an extent. But other people who are relying on being able to, especially like people who, Hey, I do my striking training here. I do my jujitsu, my wrestling here. You know, I do strength and conditioning here. And they they used to kind of piecing together their training camps that way. And then suddenly, all those gyms are closed. And now you're on the Mark Coleman program, uh, doing burpees uh, during TV commercials, and like in your living room. That's tough, man. That is tough to get in fight shape, to get your weight down, and to get ready to actually show up and be in a goddamn cage fight on the night. Yeah, and in fact, one of the uh, that's. It's kind of one of the things that I thought we were going to talk about on to, on today's show. Um, I think we might have uh, a listener mail about it. Oh yes, uh, I believe famed Irish broadcaster Eamon Dumphy uh, wrote us a listener mail about that. He did. He writes in with Dana pushing on with UFC 249 and 250. I find myself conflicted. Do I want sports back? Yes, I do. Do I want to see Tony versus Habib? Hell yes, I do. Do I want to see fights? 
uh, where the athletes involved are struggling to find places to train, don't even know where the fights are going to be held and are racing to get in and out of certain countries before travel bans have locked them down all while trying to cut weight? No, I don't think so. I'd rather wait for these guys and girls to be able to prepare safely without restrictions instead of under these circumstances. Now, this uh, this is a really good point. Like, Let's assume, Ben, that a miracle happened, that we got into a uh, – a Todd Duffy type situation with Habib Nurmagomedov where we were able to pack him into a crate full of t-shirts and ship him from uh, Dagestan to wherever they end up having the fight. Yeah. What, is Dagestan, to make it there. Uh, what do they export uh, those hats? Maybe we get a crate yeah, full of those hats. Habib uh, hides in there. The, the Papapka, I think is yeah. what it's called. So you pack you him into a, uh, into a crate of those. You ship him off to wherever they're going to have the fight. He springs out of the thing and is able to go in there and fight Tony Ferguson as scheduled in the main event of UFC 249. Just cut a little uh, like styrofoam light- packing peanuts, just dusting them off the, as he gets out. For, for the UFC lightweight title. Uh, and then, I mean, let's, that's the best case scenario. That's if there's a miracle <laughs> happened and we got everybody together and still – can you imagine a scenario where this fight goes off and whatever happens happens and then there's not a ton of controversy after it because of the lead up to this fight and how nobody can train and nobody can get into their gyms? Like you're obviously not going to see the best version of Habib Nurmagomedov. You're obviously not going to see the best version of Tony Ferguson. Like what is the point of doing this if in the end of it, everyone's just going to be like, well, we got to run it back now uh, under normal circumstances when guys can actually train with their teams. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and (sighs) Add to that, like you, you want to talk about the controversy of people not even being able to train properly and everything. Imagine the controversy of somebody comes away from this, having contracted this virus, either in transit or while they're hanging around in these hotels and conference rooms and everything else with a bunch of other fighters. You know, we just saw this story uh, on the New York Times about uh, Liberty University, you know, reopening, being one of the few universities to welcome students back from spring break instead of going to online learning the way most others have. And then the New York Times reports now they have uh, roughly a dozen students who seem like they have symptoms that might suggest that they have the coronavirus. And you're thinking, well, yeah, of course, everybody told you not to do this because this would happen. You did it anyway, and then it happened. Imagine if the UFC faces something like that, and it's entirely reasonable that it could. And then even if it doesn't, one of the scenarios I keep running around is like we keep hearing Florida thrown around as a potential host for this. So it seems like the front runner, at least, at least if it's going to happen in the United States, all the talk seems to be that it would happen somewhere in Florida. And Florida right now is looking like it's starting to see that it's a, the situation get worse and worse. We're a little less than three weeks out from UFC 249 scheduled date. By then, it could be right there in the shit. Like It could be dealing with a really, really bad situation where a lot of the uh, the – uh, the virus has spread and a lot of the patients have gotten critical and the hospitals are overwhelmed, similar to what we're seeing in other places like New York and Seattle. Now imagine coming in there off on fight night afterwards, you know, it's a UFC event. When's the last time you heard of a UFC event where nobody had to go to the hospital afterwards, where it was all just like stitches that we could do in the backstage area or, you know, your hands swollen, we put some ice on it. Like usually somebody got to go to the hospital. Imagine rolling into a hospital right now with somebody and being like, Hey, we brought this guy and broke his forearm. He's going to need uh, surgery tonight. Or broke his jaw. Going to need surgery. Broke his orbital. Like So uh, we need you to look at him. Imagine the look on the medical professional's faces when they learn that you are there in their already overwhelmed hospital because of a professional cage fight that you got hurt in. Like They would look at you like you must be the dumbest person alive, the least socially responsible person alive. 
Like, yeah. Imagine those kind of controversies. Like it's that when you start to to think about what kind of situation you could be looking at by the time this fight goes on, and what else is going on in the world, and how this stuff interacts with it, it starts to become just even more insane. Yeah, and I think like a hundred times more insane if you're not going to do it with with Habib Nurmagomedov, if you're right. going to do it without him, if he's stuck stuck over there in Dagestan, and now we we are looking at what appears to be the overwhelming possibility that Tony Ferguson and Habib Nurmagomedov is off for what, like the fifth time? I think so. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we, we, we had some fun the last few weeks talking about how it took a global pandemic in order to, for the MMA gods to screw up Tony and Habib this time. Uh, now it seems like that's very much going to be our reality. And yet like Habib is talking about in this, uh, social media posts. He's talking about how the UFC appears to want to forge ahead, even without him, even without the scheduled main event, even without this fight that is supposed to be the biggest fight of the opening quarter of the year for the UFC. And up to this point, the reason I think we have all assumed that they wanted to be so uh, stubborn and ardent that, yeah, we're going to go ahead and keep doing this fight. Like this fight will come off no matter what. And now just the idea that you would still do it, without Habib Nurmagomedov, that you would try to drag up not only a person who can't even train properly, but like a short notice person who can't even train properly to fight Tony Ferguson in the main event of this thing. It's just unbelievable to me. I can't for the life of me figure it out. Yeah. That's the part that really hammers home the insanity of it. Here's my, my question to you. Do you think it's at this point that Dana White is just too much, too all in, too, has too much personal stuff riding on this this fight happening. He's it's such an ego thing for him at this point. He's got out there and said, "You think I can't do this? You want to bet against me pulling this off? You think I can't pull it off?" He's been doing that and doing it for weeks now. Do you think that he has just invested so much of his kind of like identity in making this happen that he he can't admit to himself, "Hey, look, it's already you'd be dealing with like the." worst of a bad situation uh, you, you you're already not going to do the thing that you set out to do and the thing that you could possibly do is not only risky but it's it was it's nobody's first choice anyway like the thing we wanted is no longer on the table and so why keep going with it do you think he just can't allow himself to come around to that ar- argument or that idea because he's put so much else on the line uh in being stubbornly adamant that this is going to happen it's really, really hard for me to tell what's going on right now. It seems like like something that we don't know about is happening with the UFC. Either that or it kind of seems like Dana White has snapped and that he's just going to put this fight card on no matter what. Uh, you know, we, we talked a lot about what's going on with Endeavor perhaps and maybe the UFC needs this money. Maybe the uh, – the overlords over there at Endeavor are kind of like putting the the pedal down to make sure that this event comes off. I mean, otherwise I can't figure it out, man. Like we know that we've seen this personality trait from Dana White before of kind of being very stubborn. And once he gets, I guess, to uh, borrow a gambling phrase, which I'm sure he would understand, pot committed to an idea that he can't let it go, that he's going to keep after it. No matter what, we've seen much smaller, much lower stakes examples of that before in the UFC's past. We talked about uh, 
the incident where Jeremy Stevens got arrested on the day he was supposed to fight uh, at a UFC fight night event in Minneapolis. And Dana White was kind of like uh, all in on the idea of getting him out of jail and still getting him into the fight to to go over there and and, and fight at this weird fight night event. Uh, and that's kind of what this UFC 249 thing reminds me of, man. Like, it's just like he, he made this, this commitment, like he decided that they were going to do it. And now it's like, as you said, like a challenge to his personal ego, but I can't figure out kind of what's behind it. Maybe I'll read this question from Nick Jolly. Okay. Where he writes, Listening to Dana's regular media activities, I get the impression that he's trying to remain in the spotlight and keep the sport in the media and obviously promote Tony and Habib, among other things. I keep hearing that once this is over, many things will change per- permanently, i.e. less of a reliance on China, lending practices, etc. And I can't help but wonder if there's little to no MMA for up to nine months, whether people will really miss it, at least to the level Endeavor's management hope we will. The NFL is uh, 17 rounds plus payoffs. AFL here was 22 rounds plus finals, uh, which was a good balance. With the UFC, we were almost at a saturation point. And as Chad's athletic article of a couple months ago pointed out, many previous MMA addicts have moved on to other things only to return for the blockbuster fights. How problematic is this enforced break to endeavor and the sport in general? I I, I don't know that I necessarily have an answer for this question, Ben, but it's kind of like teasing out a lot of the things that I feel like are are in the ether around this UFC 249 decision. Yeah, that uh, it does seem like it has to be something like that, right? Like you, like you mentioned that feeling that, there's got to be something we don't know or something that maybe we just don't know the extent of it that is motivating this kind of decision. It's either that or it's just once you plant your feet and you decide this is what we're doing, you cannot possibly be talked out of it. And that's just a personality trait. But it does seem like at this point, you would think that the the big bosses at Endeavor, if they didn't feel like they absolutely needed this, like absolutely needed the, the cash infusion of going ahead with this pay-per-view, would pick up the phone and call Dana White and be like, Hey, it's not worth it at this point. Like let's, let's shut down like everybody else is doing and let's live to do this another day. And so, yeah, I don't, but then the, well, for one thing, the, I know we're not doing our usual format, but if we were, my, are you fucking kidding me was going to be about Dana White occasionally popping up in different interviews he's been doing and trying to frame this as if he is doing this for us, for the people like to lift the national morale uh, that story, like he he talked to uh, Dan Wetzel from Yahoo Sports, and he was saying, "Hey, you know, somebody's got to be the first person to step up here and be like, hey, let's get going again, America. Uh, let's we can't hide from this thing forever. Like let let's get moving." And framing it like that, like okay, this is it's the people need this. The people need UFC two forty nine for sixty five dollars on pay per view, and that is the reason that we are going through with this. Are you fucking kidding me? We know that's not the case, but also at this point. You're telling us you want to put on this fight card, this pay-per-view fight card. It's going to cost people 65 bucks to watch it, and it's basically going to be, you know, TBD versus TBA at a secret location, uh, undisclosed to the public. And at that point, it feels like how how great a return do you really think you're going to see on that? Like even with other sports shut down, even when no other options really to choose from as far as live sports go. How many people do you think are really going to sit there and be like, all right, I'll take UFC, whoever we could find for 65 bucks on pay-per-view. I, I, maybe it gets more people than you would otherwise just because of the, the desperation for some entertainment. But you also get a lot of people sitting around in economically uncertain times who are going, do I really want to spend 65 bucks on this 
fight card that is not what I was excited about in the first place. Yeah, I mean, you had an idea that was dubious in the beginning to try to put UFC 249 on amid this pandemic. And then once you find out that we're probably not going to be able to have Habib Nurmagomedov there, to me, the idea complete becomes not, not only just untenable, but like honestly kind of silly. Like, why would you even do it? You're not going to get a significant pay-per-view buy rate out of, you know, Tony Ferguson and whatever, like Joe Soto type individual we can scrape together for Tony Ferguson to fight. It's just, it's not a blockbuster anymore. It's not the highlight of the first quarter of the year. I just don't understand it. And I don't, I mean, I guess, I don't know that we've heard from Dana White in the wake of this Habib thing. Maybe we have. His media appearances are kind of all blending together for me at this point. But like, I just, it seems hard for me to believe that this thing will come off. And now that we know that Habib Nurmagomedov is not going to be involved, it makes me wonder what the point of even doing the damn thing would be. And like, clearly some of the stuff Dana White is doing is designed to generate headlines, designed to be kind of a media strategy. He seems to be going out of his way in every interview at this point to refer to reporters as fucking scumbags who are just going to, uh, you know, uh, double cross you and sabotage your, your operation. And like his, his, the details of his actual beef to me seem somewhat, uh, slippery. Like he's keeps talking about how, like, man, you tell these media guys anything. And the first thing they try to do is just try to screw up all the planning you've done. And it's just sort of like, uh, no, like that's not the case. And that's not the fundamental way that this relationship works. Like the media guys are trying to disseminate information. Like they're trying to put out the fair and accurate information that they have uh, gathered, you know, through their contacts of being MMA reporters. And whatever happens with that information is is a different thing entirely. Like it seems like to and I and you know even though we have talked a lot about how Dana White is is buddies with the president and they they fly around on private jets together and he recently appeared on stage at a rally for the president. Like Dana White knows better than that. Like he knows what, how this relationship works. And so to, to continually go on all of these interviews and say, you know, he's not going to tell the press anything anymore. He keeps telling everybody not to tell the press anything and he'll only tell us stuff when we need to know it. And re- reporters are scumbags that try to screw up everything. Like he's clearly just trying to generate headlines. And I guess trying to generate headlines in service of UFC 249 coming off as scheduled, but at the same time, not to reiterate everything I've I've said so far on the show, but like I just don't understand why they are so dead set on having it happen the way that it was previously scheduled to happen. When it's clear, like it's just it just doesn't seem like that's possible. One of the things that seems apparent to me during all of this is that Dana White actually cannot conceive of the possibility that maybe we're asking some of these questions and pounding some of these issues because. W- the media actually is concerned about whether the UFC is doing, taking the proper precautions to look out for fighter health and safety. And that maybe due to some of the things we've seen in the past, when the UFC gets its back up against the wall over some kind of issue, we have reason to think that it might not, that it might cut some corners here and there. If it can, that might try to get away with doing the least that it possibly has to do. And so when we ask these questions, what he hears is, oh, you guys are just trying to poke holes in my plan. You guys are just trying to pull out any loose thread you can until you unravel the whole thing. And he cannot even conceive that maybe we're asking because we we want to make sure that you're actually doing this right. Like we, we want to be sure that you're not putting fighters at undue risk. And to, like, to get so upset about it when people are going like, 
hey, okay, like we were willing to extend you a little bit of uh, leeway, like more so than in other sports. Like all the other sports have shut down. You know, first the USC was saying, like, hey, look at NBA and NFL or, or NHL. They're not shutting down. And then they did. And then the UFC plowed ahead. And we said, okay, maybe we could imagine a scenario where you could still put on these fights as long as you were really careful about it and you tested everybody and you made sure that, uh, you know, you weren't sending people back to various parts of the world uh, carrying this virus. Are you doing that? And then the UFC told us, none of your fucking business. And we went, whoa, okay, that's the opposite of the reassurance that we were asking for on behalf of the, the fighters' health and safety. And it, I don't think Dana White can even comprehend that that might be like a legitimate concern that people who have followed this sport and know how it often works might have about how the fighters are going to be treated during all this. Yeah, and like above and beyond that, I agree with you. But even bigger than fighter safety is community safety. Like if you look right. at the damn UFC 249 fight card, just look at where everybody is from on this thing, man. Tony and Habib obviously both train out of California, which is a coronavirus hotspot at this point. Now Habib is in Dagestan. You got Jessica Andrade coming in from Brazil. You got Rose Namajunas, who obviously is coming in from Colorado. You got Jeremy Stevens, who is from the Midwest, but trains out of San Diego. You got Calvin Cater, who's from Massachusetts. You just go down the list on and on, and it's clear like people would be flying in for UFC 249 basically from all over the country and all over the world. And then, like we've said several times on our various properties, man, Meeting to suppress their immune systems, get super sweaty and bloody and roll around with each other in the cage, and then everybody would get on a plane and fly back to where they are from. That is like the perfect virus spreading engine. So I think questions about whether or not UFC 249 is going to come off are legitimately about fighter safety, but they're also just about people spreading this disease all over the damn world, even worse than it already is. So – I mean, the idea that it wouldn't be that these aren't legitimate fighter health and public health questions is 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 just ridiculous. Right. But then you listen to the things that Dana White has said about the virus itself. You can't hide from this, Chad. It's like cancer. It's going to get you. Whatever. Bring it on, coronavirus. And you just – you get a sense that it, the guy at the top doesn't seem to understand it. He just doesn't seem to understand anything about how it works. And that just – it's how can you – how can you just as a fan you're watching it you're thinking about whether to spend your 65 bucks to watch the event that the UFC says it's putting on and you're hearing all this stuff if you're a reasonable person who's an mma fan and a ufc fan how can you feel totally good about being like you know what i'm sure they're doing all the the necessary things i'm sure they're taking every last precaution and not leaving anything to chance and not risking anything they don't have to and i can feel good about being a part of this and and spending my money on it like you can't listen to what he's saying and still feel like okay this is going to be done really well yeah especially when since we had a window we had an opportunity for us to feel good about it and what they told us was it's none of your goddamn business yeah exactly so i don't know how that's supposed to stoke any confidence all right let's do this question from sean clark which he writes in to say easy question has it occurred to either of you gentlemen that canceling all these shows might actually get us back to just for this year stacked cards again now see ben this seems to me like a a good point that ought to be made that if the ufc does have to postpone these cards for three months or four months or whatever it is I think it does give them a good opportunity to kind of circle back. And when sports come back in the fall or late summer or whenever it happens to be to put on a string of absolute blockbuster bangers that everyone is going to want to see. And 
unless they are in some manner of dire financial straits where the UFC is going to goddamn go out of business if we don't do UFC 249 on April the 18th. I don't understand why they can't see that, that they, that this, that postponing these events and make sure, making sure that they do them safely would actually put them in the position to have like maybe the biggest fall in the company's history because they would have all these fights that would be ready to go. By fall, you mean the season of autumn, not decline. No, yes. I mean the season of autumn, but I appreciate your continued, just unrelenting bleakness to continually bring <laughs> that stuff up. It's just the way you phrase it. But yeah, no, I, I the thing is, I was wondering about, because when I heard these reports like, hey, uh, Francis Ngannou versus uh, Jairzinho Rosenstruck, that one might be moved to UFC 249. And Dana White was saying, hey, I'm going to make this the biggest, baddest fight card ever, which I mean, hey, if you're going to do the fight card anyway, I guess you might as well put a little extra work in to try to make it a really good one. But then when I was talking to a lot of these fighters and asking them about how they're training, and a lot of them are, are undercard guys or even prelim guys, and I'm going, hey, the UFC says that uh, it might be changing up this lineup. Are you concerned that they start adding fights? They start moving fights that had been scheduled for other events, and they start moving them here. What do they do? Do they make it just a really long event with like a, a Bellator style 18 fight prelim or do they axe some of the, the scheduled fights on here and are you worried that you might be one of the ones that gets axed? And they were all like, you know, yeah, that seems like a possibility, but I don't think it'll be me. And like, I hope it won't be me. Like maybe somebody else's fight will have to get moved or something. But that is the question. Like, cause I, I agree. You get all these people who haven't fought in a while and they're all going to be sitting around. Everybody's going to be wanting fights. You could end up in a situation where suddenly everybody's available and everybody needs to fight. And so you put together a bunch of big cards, but then what do you do with all the other people that you've got under contract and that, you know, you, you got to offer them fights every so often. So you're not in breach of contract. Like, do those people just get, do they have to sit out? Does the UFC start putting on 15 fight uh, cards or, or what? Yeah. And like a classic fighter mentality, by the way, just be like, well, I'm just going to soldier on and assume that it's not going to be me that gets left out in the cold. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, and if you do like try to postpone these events and, and come back later in the year to put them together, I, I mean, I feel like you would be dealing with a wide open slate to be able to get that done. You know, like I have a feeling that ESPN would probably work with you to make sure that you like you can the fights that aren't deemed pay-per-view worthy, you could still get on ESPN plus guards. Obviously, it would be a lot of stuff to work out, but I think we're going to have a lot of stuff to work out when all yeah. this this thing is over. And and like, you know, where we're going to put all these fights was it would kind of be the least of society's worries, to be honest with you. And so, like, I, I, I feel pretty confident that the company that insists that it's going to do UFC 249 come hell or high water would find a time and a place to put all these fights on under much easier circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's, uh, let's shift gears a little bit here, Ben, because obviously uh, the Habib Nurmagomedov thing is not the only uh, kind of breaking or ongoing news here in the in the world of mixed martial arts. We also have this from Tom Hughes, who writes in, as the pandemic continues and the world keeps getting weird and scary, it's nice to see that John Jones, that scamp, is continuing to behave in his usual manner. Will somebody please get this guy a chauffeur? You know, I wish that if I get arrested for DWI with popping a, a gun off out the window with a, a bottle of tequila, opening the car while I'm sitting across the street from a strip club. I wish that people would say, oh, that's scamp. That's the best possible uh, interpretation you could get. Well, I mean, Ben, you teach people how to treat you, man. Okay. And John Jones yeah. up to this point has taught us to expect 
exactly this from him. You know, the it feels to me like the will somebody please get John Jones a full time driver? That feels like the the line of thinking of a couple years ago that we used to say that to ourselves. At this point, it's not even really about that. I mean, I think the where we learn about the stuff that is going on with John Jones usually happens when he is behind the wheel of a car in one way or another. But I, I think at this point, it's a little bit more the the symptom than the disease. Because he, if he's out there uh, drinking in the car and shooting a gun out the window you know, during a pandemic, that I think says to just like, what's going on in the guy's life that brought him to that point. It's, it, it, it's the vehicular nature that is the common thread that kind of links all of these, but it's not as if like, if he had just had a driver, everything would have been totally fine in that situation and nothing weird would have been happening at all. Right. And like, who's that driver going to be at this point? We're talking about a 24 hour a day, 365 day a year, seven day a week job where like you would literally have to be with John Jones at all times, including in the middle of a goddamn global pandemic where he's going to decide he needs to take a ride with his 22 underneath the seat. Like, I don't know what kind of wage you would have to pay someone for them to sign up for that gig. You were basically, you're basically talking about getting John a live in handler at this point. Yeah. If you think that he should have a chauffeur. It's like in uh, the movie Cobb. With uh, Tommy Lee Jones. You see that one about Ty Cobb? Yeah, the one that was, uh, you know, 10 or 15 years ago was on HBO basically every day. Yeah. Yeah, no, I've seen that probably about a half a dozen times. Yeah, where he does have a live-in handler because he is drunk and waving a gun around for much of the time. And then even in the movie, like the handler just up and quits and decides to walk down the snowy road instead of spend one more moment in a house with Ty Cobb. Uh, So that does seem like maybe an accurate picture of how that relationship would end. You know, people were asking me in the mailbag today about like, okay, is the UFC going to strip John Jones or the, cause he, you know, he got stripped after that hit and run. Uh, And then I remembered how, at least according to John Jones, and I think Lorenzo Fertitta at least pushed back against this version of events. But John Jones said after that hit and run thing happened and after the arrest happened that they came to talk to him either Lorenzo and Dana or just Lorenzo or or I think it was both of them but and basically they were going to keep him in that fight we had that fight scheduled at UFC 187 with Anthony Johnson he said they were asking him like okay do you still want to go through with a fight and that they were willing to keep going with it and let him stay the champion everything and when he said no you know that he had all this stuff happen and he was not going to do the fight and was instead going to go to rehab although who knows for how long and then they said, okay, well, if he's not going to be in the fight, then we'll strip him and we'll put the, the vacant title up for grabs. Does it seem to you like the question about is this latest drinking and driving kind of situation, is this one the one that convinces the UFC to strip him again of the title? It, it seems to me like it would be, have more to do about how does it affect his availability to fight? Like yeah, if he's we, ready to go and if he doesn't have to go to jail or anything, if he's ready when fights can resume on a regular schedule and the UFC can – you know, has plans to book him. If he's ready and willing to be booked, then I don't think they strip him over this. Yeah. We talked about this a little bit on last week's Friday power hour, uh, power hour over on the, the Patreon, because this, this, I believe it had broken on Thursday that he had gotten arrested. Uh, and I said at the time that John Jones has had so many brushes with the law that I have lost track of his legal standing. 
and that remains true. Like, I honestly don't know if John Jones is still on probation from whatever the last thing he did was. Uh, I don't know, like, what the full ramifications of his no contest plea to that thing that happened, what was it, uh, last April, like almost a year ago at this point. Yeah. Uh, in the gentleman's club there in Albuquerque, I don't know what the extenuating circumstances for him were following that no contest plea. So I don't know, like, if he, if him getting arrested again violates some kind of pending uh, order from a judge or some kind of, uh, you know, something regarding his, his legal standing there in Albuquerque. And the only way that I could see this latest incident affecting his status with the UFC is if it somehow, if it somehow does violate like a previous probation or something like that. And John Jones has to do some jail time. If that happened, then I could see the UFC going in and stripping him and saying, all right, we're going to go ahead and have another interim title here. Uh, if not, like if he's going to, if he's basically going to get some manner of, of further probation or some kind of slap on the wrist here. And frankly, this, you know, this doesn't seem like that, big of a deal as compared to some of the other stuff that we've seen John Jones involved with. So it's kind of what I expect. I don't think the UFC would take any action against him at all, especially since, as you mentioned, like we're, we are going through this time where that company seems dead set on continuing its calendar of fights un, un uh, adulterated. But at the same time, like nobody believes that that's going to happen. Like we're, we're, we're going through a time here where almost all the sports are on pause. It seems like uh, in a weird way, if John Jones was going to slip up and get himself back in some legal trouble, he kind of timed it correctly here because at least we we think there will be like an enforced break on the sport of mixed martial arts. And I would bet that by the time we get things back together and start putting on shows again, John Jones is is able to more or less go on being the UFC light heavyweight champion without any kind of uh, change in his status. Now, like I said, all of that could be wrong, but it's kind of what I expect at this point. I don't think that the UFC would take any action against him unless it absolutely had to. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, we were like three months from now, somebody's going to be like, oh, yeah, remember John Jones and the thing with the gun and then Albuquerque driving around with Jorge Macedo's tequila? Almost forgot about that. Yeah. Did you watch the body cam footage from this thing? You know what? I started to watch a little bit of it and I was like, nope, don't want to do this to myself. Don't want this knocking around in my brain. Yeah, I watched some of it as well and had a similar reaction and then kind of read the account of what happens on the rest of the stuff that I uh that I didn't couldn't bring myself to watch. But suffice to say, like the parts of it that I did watch, and I'm sure the parts that you watched, it's weird, man. Yeah, just reading about it, I was like, I don't I don't want to see this. It seems like it'll make me sad. Yeah, he, he's like having trouble saying the alphabet at the beginning of it. And then because they're giving him field sobriety tests, obviously. It seems like, Ben, and this is some of the stuff we talked about on Friday, but again, a little bit more information has come to light. Like, obviously, uh, he is in, in the middle of Albuquerque. He's not like out in the boonies or something driving around shooting uh, pop pop cans or something. Uh, it seems like from everything that we know to this point, maybe he had pulled over and was like speaking with some homeless people. Trying to make them feel like human beings, treating them like human yeah. beings. And I remember when I read the initial police report that it had referred to a, an additional person on the scene who was standing by John Jones's car, like when the arresting officer initially showed up, and then it was never really explained in that initial incident report. And I was kind of wondering, like, who was that other person? Now it seems like maybe John Jones had pulled over in his own mind to do a good deed for the, uh, the transient population there in the ABQ and ends up getting arrested for uh, DWI. But it just, the body cam stuff paints a very, very strange and, and uh, 
kind of awkward picture of John Jones out there being somewhat drunk and failing his field sobriety tests and like having to talk to the cops about how his short-term memory is super bad because he gets punched in the head for a living. And then in the part that I did not watch, but read the, the account of, apparently it seems like maybe he starts to have like an anxiety attack or something, starts to say that he has really bad anxiety and keeps asking the cop if he can take his hoodie off and all this stuff. Uh, so just a very strange back and forth between John Jones and, uh, you know, these police in, in Albuquerque, New Mexico that, that, I mean, it, it, I guess the, the, it said in the police report, it seemed like he was smoking marijuana and drinking, but like you, you watch this thing, man. And, and like, I, it seems like some erratic behavior to me from John Jones. Yeah. I mean, breaking news, John Jones exhibits erratic behavior. If you are a police officer in Albuquerque. Do you think okay. that there's some kind of like uh ongoing betting pool or it's like be on the lookout? Yeah, it's it's it will yeah, there's a bolo out for John Jones at all times or it's just like uh it's like everybody's going to get their turn kind of like uh <laughs> you know you 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 aren't really a cop in Albuquerque until you have to bust John Jones one night. Yeah. Until you at least have to have a conversation with him. Yeah. I, I imagine that that's a, like where somebody is like, oh, the rookie just busted John Jones. Everybody, you know, like, hey, he's one of the team now. That's red panty night. <laughs> no, don't. Albuquerque Police Department. Don't mix these things up. Don't don't cross the streams here. All right. Let's uh, let's do this question here from the Corgi King. Okay. He writes, my friends, you two seem like reasonable people who make decisions based on facts and evidence. So I have to ask, how do you justify your MMA fandom? I ask because I'm struggling to justify it myself in the wake of this pandemic and the UFC show must go on at all costs attitude. Uh, it's been atrocious and yet not at all surprising. I never had any doubts that the UFC was a business and that their number one priority was money. But putting on shows at a time like this just seems irresponsible. If UFC 249 goes down on the 18th in a boatyard or whatever, I think uh, for the first time I'm going to hashtag not watch. Now, obviously we spent a lot of time earlier in the show talking about UFC 249 and Habib Nurmagomedov. But I think this question like kind of dovetails with the John Jones situation as well because it's just like yet another out of the cage incident for for john jones and another thing that kind of like makes us maybe feel this weird feeling in the pit of our stomachs about the sport of mma in general so like this is an interesting question for this time not only about you know the the wide angle stuff of what the ufc is trying to do with ufc 249 but i think also with some of like the specifics of of you know, what the most recent news of the day has been. Ben, is this, is this something that you struggle to explain to yourself or to other people? Uh, and are you, and has, and is it a fluid situation? Like, have you, have you changed your opinion recently? I guess. You know, I have mostly had the experience like in talking to people I know, you know, <laughs> via like various forms of like text and email and stuff since I've just been in this house with my family for what seems like 10,000 days now. But where people who know me will reach out, you know, and they're like, oh, hey, like, what do you guys do now that all the sports are shut down? And like, you guys, the sport isn't going on, like, right? And like, and then you kind of have to be like, actually, maybe our sport, like the one I cover will be the only one that tries to continue. And their reaction is, what? That's insane. And that's, it's that same phenomenon we've talked about where, we MMA fans and definitely the UFC itself wants mainstream acceptance, wants to be among mainstream sports, wants to be viewed on that level. And then every once in a while you remember 
maybe it's good that the rest of the sports world doesn't pay that much attention to us or doesn't always know what we're up to. Because sometimes if they did, maybe they'd be horrified. It's that kind of feeling all over again. Like I don't know if it really at this point changes the way I view the UFC or if I see it as like, this was a bridge I thought they'd never try to cross because uh, from what we've already seen, it's kind of in keeping, it's kind of in character with what we expect from the UFC and especially from Dana White in particular. Uh, So I don't know if it's that surprising on that level. It's just something where I do wonder if the UFC is thinking, Hey, all the other sports will be shut down and we'll say to people, here we are, like we're the saviors. We, we bring you live sports. We alone are brave enough to bring you live sports in this difficult time. And everybody will go, Oh, thank goodness. You guys, you really saved the day. Here's my credit card. And I think that there is also just as good a chance that people will look at it and go, wait, what you're doing? You're doing what now? I would, I mean, even for the UFC, this seems like kind of a balls out move to me to try to keep doing their events amid the pandemic. And I guess maybe it's just more of like a, oh, they are who we thought they are. They thought they are who yeah. we thought they were sort of a moment for us that we're just sort of reminded like, okay, like all of this kind of stubborn bullheadedness show must go on mentality that we've seen from the UFC time and time again, where they've like moved events to California when John Jones tested positive for stuff uh, a previous time where they brought in these last minute opponents to fight champions where they've basically done everything that they could possibly do to still put these events on. Like that's not just a, like a small picture, uh, situation with the UFC. Like they will extend that sort of like big picture world events, like unprecedented during our lifetime, big picture world events, frankly. And so I guess while it's not surprising, I do kind of feel like the current stuff that's happening is a little bit eye opening. And it does, if not underscore or solidify what you thought about the UFC before, maybe it's a little bit of an eye opener to, to realize that, Oh yeah, they are going to, they are going to do this or try to do this. And it seems like the person in charge either doesn't understand or doesn't care uh, what the actual reality of the worldwide situation is. And so to me that like, that's the thing that I have struggled with over the past few weeks, just like trying to, not that I felt like I had a lot in common with the like social values and mores of the UFC in the first place. And with Dana White specifically, but like this was one that did surprise me. I have to say like, this was a decision where I was like, Oh word, really going to keep doing it, huh? All right. Well, pretty <laughs> weird, but it's just it's it's like the 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 latest and biggest example of things that do make me uncomfortable about the sport and i guess the way that i continue to justify my my fandom my fanmanship uh is that i do kind of believe in the sport itself despite the fact that it obviously uh also has a very kind of dark side that it can deal some very significant physical damages to the people who uh, participate in it, the people that, that do it for a long period of time. But like, I think that the, like the mechanics of the sport itself are super interesting. I think that it's a super cerebral sport. I think that it's a very nuanced and diverse sport. There are a lot of things that make it the best individual sport to my taste in the world. And, you know, even when it comes to like the business side of things and what the UFC's practices and stuff like that, I will say this for it, like as a journalist who covers the sport, it is not boring. It, is, it, has, <laughs> it has never been boring. And even now, it continues to be just weirder and uh, more more of a, of a like ever-changing 
scene than I ever thought it would be. And so like, I guess from a fan standpoint, I justified by saying I really like the sport. And like from a journalist standpoint, I justified by saying like, I, it seems like any other sport that you could cover would be just tedious and boring compared to the stuff that we do in this sport. Yeah. Can you imagine if all you had to do was sit around and wait for your sport to decide that it was responsible and uh, socially acceptable to again, begin holding competitions? No, not us, baby. No, we get to decide if we're all just going to find ourselves a a river barge or something and, and get on with the damn thing. All right, let's do this question. We didn't have time to get to UFC 2, which is maybe for the best here this week. We can we can kick that over to next week, or we can do it on Friday's Power Hour. Or we can do something about that. Uh, but let's do this question from David Lotteray that came in because it's it references UFC 1, which we obviously talked about last week. He writes, last week you gentlemen wondered aloud what the UFC landscape would look like if Gerard Gordu beat Hoist Gracie at UFC 1. What alternate universe would ensue? Uh, as the next quarter century passed, I think it's safe to say that Hoist Gracie winning is actually the alternate universe. In the real universe, Gerard Gordu beats Hoist and then Hicks in goddamn Gracie avenges, avenges his brother at UFC 2 and beats the shit out of everyone for the next 10 years. Tell me that doesn't get you simultaneously pumped and also bummed out that in this fucking universe, Hoist is royalty and the world doesn't know what a Tiger King Hickson was. Discourse, please, about what the real universe looks like today and how far Hickson could have gone given the chance damn it he got me that's that's actually a really astute take on this because that that would have been an awesome world when we see hickson at the end of this one kind of when horse they're asking did you do any special training like probably what would have happened also yeah yeah like he kind of like throws his arm around hickson and is like oh these guys are these are my special training and you can see hickson be like you mean because i've been beating the shit out of you every day for like the last like eight weeks yeah you're welcome but you're right man that would have been a way more awesome universe if it's like you beat up the gracie guy you're feeling really good about it and then enrolls hickson he's like i heard you were fucking with my dude and you're like oh shit yeah, you beat up my little brother i heard <laughs> You're like, God like a, damn it. Uh, a reminder that the Gracie that you beat was the little one. <laughs> oh, man, that is the much better universe. I, I kind of wish we could have lived in that one. Yeah. I mean, we, here we are in the real universe where Hicks and Gracie is 500 and 0. He probably would have been 5,000 and 0. Yeah. In well, this, in this alternate universe where he's fighting for the honor of Hoist. Well, then maybe it's. Maybe, honestly, it's a good thing he didn't have to fight for the honor of Hoist because he probably would have killed some people, Chad. Ripped their throats out. Yeah, it would have been extremely dangerous. That's that's one thing I do know. Well, I, for one, am excited to discuss UFC 2 on – what are we going to do this, on Friday on the Power Hour? Because I have a lot of thoughts about UFC 2. I I took it to notes, man. Man, UFC 2 is dope, I have to say. Like I was a little bit worried about it because uh, it was the 16 man tournament. Obviously I was worried that it was going to be like four hours long, but Oh no, I forgot that they had a 16 man tournament, but didn't show it. Yeah. Like just, they, they only show the, the abouts. Yeah. And so, uh, no, man, I'm excited to talk about UFC too. Like some of my favorites show up big John McCarthy, for example, shows up in uh UFC two Rem Pardu, One of my main dudes from those early UFCs shows up. Plus, the whole thing is basically like a showcase for Pat Smith, and that dude's just crazy. Well, also, here's my my big overarching theory about why UFC 2 is important. UFC 2 is where we first start to see 
a lot of trends that are going to continue in MMA for the entirety of its lifespan. For instance, UFC 2, I believe the first time we, we see it really noticeable that a crowd boos when the fight goes to the ground. <laughs> UFC 2, also the first time we see someone who we just saw in action as a fighter, and then now we see them behind the fence as a trainer, Gerard Gordou there. Yeah, uh, yeah. That kind of familiar little feeling that you get. Uh, UFC 2 is where you really start to see, like, okay, this thing is taking a particular kind of shape, and that shape resembles what the final form is going to be. Yeah. You know what else you see for the first time, if I'm not mistaken? What's that? Octagon girls. Oh, okay. They're walking around with the signs that say the uh, disciplines of who's going to be in the fight next. I also love how uh, we – this was an era of martial arts when somebody shows up and he's like, he's a black belt in Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. And then somebody else shows up and it's like – he is a red sash in yeah. uh, five, five animal, animal kung, kung fu. fu, and you're yeah, like Jason Delucia, owner of the red sash. The viewers at the time they didn't know which one of those, if either, was legit. Like which they didn't know how to place any importance on either. They, they, those two things might have been equally impressive and equally dangerous inside the cage. We didn't know. We had to. This is how we were going to find out. Yeah. I guess I don't want to give away the whole store here in case we do talk about it on Friday or, or a week from today. But one of the other things I love about UFC 2 is that like if you thought that the UFC 1 broadcast was uh, Gracie-centric, maybe slanted oh, yeah. toward the Gracies, uh-huh. man, hold on to your butts. Because yes. like, clearly one of the things they decided headed into UFC 2 was like, we need this thing to be more pro-Gracie. Yeah. So like they went out the and got – yeah, they went out and got Ben Perry, the uh, the Hollywood stuntman, famed Hollywood stuntman and, uh, and also uh, – a student of the Gracies, if I'm not mistaken, uh, to sit in on color commentary and kind of just talk about the Gracies the whole time. Well, yeah, and you, you got to have somebody who actually knows what the hell the Gracies are doing at any given time, even if they've not bothered to learn anything about what anybody else is trying to do. Right. Don't know much about them, they say, about every single person in the damn tournament. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, let's uh, – Maybe we should do that on Friday for the uh, for the Patreon. So that okay. maybe the kids uh, kids who are interested in the UFC two talk who aren't on the Patreon now can go over to patreon.com uh, slash co main event. See if they take the Patreon for a spin. Um, you know, we, we also have got lots three- of other good stuff going on. We got the uh, the Wednesday live chats. Good way to stay connected to your fellow MMA fans in these times of social distancing and isolation and this spiraling despair. And uh, the movie club, yay! It's right. We got a barn burner of a movie club vote right now. It expires in uh, just a couple of days. We got uh, Ben's pick of Jojo Rabbit going up against my pick of Uncut Gems at the moment. With just a couple of days left in the voting, looks like Jojo Rabbit with a slight lead, 52% of the vote to Uncut Gems, 48% of the vote. You got two days left to go over there and vote for that one. We will be recording that movie club podcast a week from Wednesday. So uh, a lot of exciting stuff over there. If you want to see what goes on over at the Patreon, uh, go over to patreon.com slash co-main event and sign up. And uh, it's a fun time. You know, one of the other things about the Patreon, like a good crew of uh, CME community people over there. It's a, uh, you know, a lot of good people, a lot of good discussion. I think people will like it. Yeah. You know, you you get to, to feel like you're still connected to some human beings who share some of your interests. And also you get to support this here podcast. Keep the discourse free and unfettered. Unfettered discourse. All right. As for now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. 
how's it going over there? You, uh, it's definitely desperate times over here. Yeah, we had, to, we had to try to start doing my daughter's uh, online learning for school today. Oh, yeah, we did that. We, we needed to implement more of a structure around the home. I would say it was uh, partly successful, partly unsuccessful. Well, you know, it's a work in progress. Yeah, and the good news is I think you're going to get a lot more cracks at it for at least like the entire month of April. Yeah, yeah it does seem that way, doesn't it? Seems like we might be here for a while. Yay, good news. Yeah.